praise the Lord. We give glory to God. Thank you very much, sister. May we bow our heads in prayer. Lord, we thank you for tonight and for the privilege of entering into your word. We pray, O oh God, that we will receive understanding and also the grace not to be hearers only, but to be doers as you grant us this great grace. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise the Lord. Earlier on today, I was at a service, funeral service, held for one of the great mothers of the faith in Ghana. And um, this woman was almost 90 years. And I had known her for about 40 years of that time of her life. And there was a testimony that really touched me, which I want to share, get you to also get doing. And one of the testimonies was that for several years, in fact, the MC said since about, she has notes of her church services up to as far back as 1990. Every service and every meeting that she attends in church, she's able to record, write all the notes, and she studies them and asks questions later and, you know, acts upon it. And I was really touched by that action of that godly woman. I believe that she affirms the word of God in Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, which says that, Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things that are, and the things which shall be hereafter. I believe that as much as lies within our means as children of God, if we can write, we should write in whichever form that we will be able to remember or refer to what God has taught us. And it comes up in due season. It comes in handy. And um, this old woman who has gone to be with the Lord lived that kind of life that you could hardly falter. You could see that her life was blossoming with the word of God. And that was her secret. So this is a secret that can help you. When you go to church or anytime you are hearing the word of God, pay attention and let the Holy Spirit help you to write things down. Not just hear it, but also write it down and read it and study it and apply it. And God will help you, help us all. Amen. The last few weeks we have been studying on the subject of the letters to the seven churches. And we laid some very solid foundations as we studied um, concerning the church in Ephesus and that of Smyrna and we are going to continue tonight on the letter to the church in Pergamos. By way of background, we learned that these letters were specific instructions that our Lord Jesus gave to John the Beloved whilst he was on the Isle of Patmos, whilst preparing to be slaughtered for Christ's sake. So we're not love letters, so to speak. We also learned that Jesus, in introducing the letters, said that he was writing to the angels of the churches. 
And the angels, we understood, represented the shepherds, the pastors, the bishops, the overseers, and all. But the application of the letters was for the angels themselves and for all the congregations. That is something that is very, very important for our information. Hallelujah. We also learned that you're saying that the seven lamps represent the churches themselves. The churches are a light to the world. We are supposed to be there as a light to the world. And we learned also a few things from the churches, the structure of the letters. That usually a background, uh, uh, Jesus introduces himself to the church. Um, the way he would like that church, particular local church, to know him. And he is represented in different ways. So in these letters to seven churches, we see different representations of Christ. Um, in the case of the efficient church, we saw he introduced himself as the one that walking, the, uh, the one that holds the seven stars, right, and who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Then we saw what he did with the church of Smyrna, and then tonight we're going to see the, the way he introduces himself or introduced himself to the church in Pergamos. And it's very important that to note that all the introductions apply not to the historical church, but our church even today. We can, though those churches don't physically exist, there are types and there are forms and the style in which we operate today is no different from all those churches. You find the kind of behavior and the kind of issues that were addressed in those seven churches still prevalent in churches not only in that part of the world, but in many parts of the world. Hallelujah. And not only in the lives of some one particular group of Christians, but you and I, in, the life, in our everyday relationship with the Lord, maybe this year it may not be so, but previously it was so. Or maybe in the coming years. So if you know these things, and you know the antidote and how the Lord strengthened the church to overcome these things, when your time comes to face these challenges, you will also be equipped after writing these notes and also listening to the Word of God to be able to address these problems. So do not listen and study this as a historical document. Hallelujah. Another very important point I want to bring out as we go through this study um, is to notice that apart from the, the, the practical application and the fact that it involves us of today, it's also about us, the church of tomorrow. In the sense that the whole idea of these letters was to prepare the church for the coming of the Lord. Hallelujah. It's not just a letter or letters written to just talk about God. It's different, a bit different from the epistles and from the gospels. When you read the book of John, of Luke, the purpose of the gospel according to Luke, Luke said, I want, many people have written, I also want to write to you about the things that Jesus came and did. And then that was his mission. But with the, God, with the revelation of John, this is an instruction by Jesus Christ himself telling John that tell the people of the church, this is what is, this is what will be, and this is how you should prepare. I've gone that after the ascension, I'll come again, as you heard those angels tell you. And before I come, 
these are the things I want you to put in place. Or this is the state, this is the terminal report of the church. But this is how I think you should be. So it's a different story altogether when it gets to the book of Revelation. Whereas other, uh, uh, some of the, the gospels and, and also the epistles were fundamentally uh, uh, inspirational writings to guide the church. These specific words from the mouth of Jesus in terms of revelation about what God is about to do and about what the church must do. So it's a very important set of instructions to be given to all of us. And I pray that God will give us the grace not just to hear it, but to be able to do it as we prepare for the coming of the Lord. Amen. Now, specifically, tonight's teaching is to the letter, the letter to the church in Pergamos. And as we have said, all the letters begin with some introduction of who Jesus is. And he does not introduce himself always as the Son of God. He does not introduce himself as God. But his other forms of introduction that we know. In, then it's found, the, the, the letter is found in Revelation 2, verse 12 to 17. And in Revelation 2, 12 to 17... If we are to read, maybe we can all do it together, even though we may be seated. It says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos, write, These things said he, which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith. Even in those days, wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with a sword of my mouth. Verse 17. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Hallelujah. There's a lot of value and depth in this short passage. I pray that God will help us within this short time to digest what he has for us. The first thing is the introduction. How does Jesus introduce himself? He introduces himself as the one with a sharp two-edged sword. One with a sharp Two edge, the sharp sword 
with two edges. And in the Bible, I believe that one of the clearest passages or lines of scripture in which you find two-edged sword is in the book of Hebrews. In chapter 4, verse 12. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the word of God says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing ascender of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Hallelujah. Now, so when Jesus says that he is the one that has that two-edged sword in his mouth. I want to believe that he is referring to the fact that he is the source of his word. Hallelujah. And if he is the source of his word, in which way or what way is the word of God two-edged? When we say a sword is two-edged, it means that it cuts to the uh, north and it cuts to the south. Or it cuts to the east and it cuts to the west. Both sides, normally knives or cutlasses are single-edged. One side is a bit blunt and the main part is there. But when you have a two-edged, it means that both sides, when you slash it this way, it cuts through. Now, why would Jesus refer to the Word of God or the, his, uh, He carrying a two-edged sword in His mouth? And as, as, as I understood from the Holy Spirit, there are many, a number of types where God represents His Word as two-edged. Unless you look at the scenarios and the way you apply the Word of God. You know the scripture says, faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. As we hear the Word of God and as we interpret it by the Spirit and also within our circumstances, sometimes... Because we lack understanding, we don't get the fullness of the measure of the understanding of the Word of God. That is why we always need to pray that, Lord, as I study your Word, give me a perfect understanding. Many people read the Word of God from just their cultural perspective. Or read the Word of God from their personal situation. So if the Word of God says anything, it's about, always it's only a Word of God which fits their situation. If they are poor, they see the word of God only for bringing um, um, wealth. If they are men, they see the word of God as empowering them to subjugate women or to subjugate other people. Some people see the word of God as a, a license to, to misbehave or to do what they, what, whatever they want to do. Because they say God is love. They don't know that God is also just. They don't know that God is also a God who gets angry. They don't understand they see the word of God in one narrow way in their everyday lives. And because of that, it affects the way they judge the word of God and they judge their situation. So tonight, before we proceed further, we must know who this Jesus is when he says he's a two-edged, he carries the two-edged sword. I have put down a few of the clear illustrations to help us. Number one, the word of God is a two-edged sword because the word of God judges and rewards us. It's a judge and a rewarder. 
When we read the book of Revelations 22, verse 12, which talks about how Jesus is going to reward those who he finally meets. It's very clear. Say, behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me. To give every man according as his work shall be. So you see a two-sided thing. The reward can be a, 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 a praiser, an approver. So when you look at the parable of the talents in uh, Matthew 25, uh, from verse 20 to 21 there, he meets the man who uh, turned around his, um, uh, 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 his talents. And the Lord Jesus said, the, Lord, the master said, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. So that's a reward. And we all expect that reward. But we could also be disappointed. That same master, out of the same mouth, spoke to that other servant and said, You wicked, uh, 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 you wicked servant. Did you, couldn't you have invested it and then brought back the returns? So in one breath, the Lord was rewarding somebody and blessing him and honoring him. In another breath, he was judging somebody. Tonight, as we look at, into the word of God and look at the, Jesus Christ who is carrying the two-edged sword, we want to be on the right edge, the right side, which will be a rewarding side. Hallelujah. Not the side where he's judging us unto condemnation. Praise the Lord. So, there is a judge meant unto condemnation, unto destruction. And then there's a judgment unto reward. The second one, where you see the word of God operating as a two-edged sword, is the rebuke and the comfort. Second Timothy 4 verse 2. We are urged to preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season. Reproof, rebuke, exalt with all long-suffering and doctrine. Now, rebuke is not pleasant. Today, many people in church, pastors, even can't rebuke them. Because they think that the word of God should always encourage them. Many children and many people who say who are believers don't think that anything that a preacher or a teacher or a mother or a parent or anybody who is carrying the word of God says must always make me happy, must always boost my ego, must encourage me. But that's not what the scripture says. Jesus is carrying the two-edged sword. So sometimes the word of God will encourage you. But sometimes also, the Word of God will challenge you. And when the Word of God challenges us, many times we don't like that part. We like what the one that preaches or talks about things that make us happy. Equally, the Word of God must not always be fire, fire, fire. Hallelujah. Sometimes you have a preacher who say, who finished and after firing, and say, today I gave it to them. No. So they, we can't give it to them. It's not our word. The two-edged sword is for rebuke. It's also for encouragement. So that's the two-edged sword of the word of God. The word of God is a word of liberty. The word of God liberates. It sets free. Jesus said, you shall know the truth. John 8.32 And the truth will set you free. So knowing the truth will set you free. But also, 
That same thing requires a certain submission or law which is self-imposed. It's not an external law, but an internal law. So, when you read the word of God, Galatians 5.13 talks about that. We are called unto liberty, but we should also not use the liberty for the flesh. But, but by love, serve one another, which puts us under subjection. By love, serve. Service means you are under control. You are not having your own will. So it's not, when you read the word of God, we are all things that are lawful, but not all things that are helpful. Which means that not every time that things ought to be done to make me happy or you happy. Sometimes I have to do things to make you content. Just because that is what the Lord, the Spirit says. I'm by love serving you. You two, sometimes husbands and wives. It's not always that, I, you, even though the scripture says, husband, love your wives. Sometimes, some of the love enters into being spoiled. Excessive pampering, which doesn't help. Hallelujah. So the two-edged sword teaches us these things. That yes, the word of God says we should love one another. But even in loving, if there is a time for one to be restrained from misbehaving, they need, we need to be able to say, no, this is too much. You need a bit of a rod to straighten us. Say, Amen. There is room for grace and for judgment. God's grace is there. And we read about that, Romans 3, uh, 6. But there's also joy and endurance. Much as there is happiness, we know that when we go to heaven, there will be joy. But whilst we are here, there are many scriptures that shows us, when you read uh, Peter, he talks about that. When you read first, uh, uh, Second Corinthians chapter 2, uh, for, uh, uh, chapter 4 uh, from 17. He says that, that if we compare the, the affliction here, the joy that we will have eternally to the, the, the reward we will get and compare it to the affliction here, it's insignificant. So there is room for en- enjoyment and happiness, liberty, deliverance. But we are in an era that nobody wants to endure any affliction, go through any tunnel. I pray that God's grace will help us. So this church was going through this. The church in Pergamos. Jesus did this to let the church know that even if you are going through affliction or some trial, it's also in the Word. If you are happy, it's in the Word. Hallelujah. If you are approved, it's in the Word. If you are not approved or seemingly you feel written off, it's also in the Word. Or condemned. It's somehow, in a way, you feel it's in the Word. So now he goes to a commendation. The church had good works. And we are told the good works was that they were able to resist. Talked about antipaths and all of these things. Even where Satan, in, in the seat of Satan, I don't know what, where, you, where you are located as a person, as a listener, as a viewer, or as a brother listening to me, a sister listening to me. Maybe you say, oh, just behind my house is a shrine. Or behind my neighborhood, there is a lifestyle that is disturbing me. And all of these things we talk about. You may talk about all the world, maybe your siblings, maybe your husband, maybe your wife. He himself, you say he's Satan personified. But this is a church that were living where Satan's seat was. And yet, they were not discouraged. They still serve the Lord. Their works are there, written. She says, I know your seat, where Satan's seat is. 
Thou holdest fast my name. In the midst of that, many of us, when we are faced with adversity and places where people condemn Christ and they don't allow the Lord and they talk bad about God, the first thing is we want sympathy. But here is a church that is going, living right in the, place, the seat of Satan. I don't know what the seat of Satan looks like. I don't know whether it looks very horrified with blood or whatever. But I want to believe that it's a symbol of speech. It, which, it, it, it just signifying that evil or immorality was there. It's like a place like maybe, uh, uh, no, what do you call it, um, in, in California, the other city out there, where, they, where the gay movement started. Uh, San Francisco. Every negative movement against God seemed to have started from San Francisco. So you can say it's a bit like that. Or many, any other hedonistic city in the world. But that's where most of the, I mean, the, the, the whole movement started. And, and many anti-God movements usually start from there. So you can say that it's like that. Or maybe somewhere, somewhere, I don't know whether in Africa or Middle East or somewhere, but where evil, crime, whether it is ritual, madness, or whatever, prevalent. And yet, these ones, these saints stood. Some of us, as uh, our senior papa has been saying, we are battling with tilapias and we are worried. And people are facing dragons and they are surviving. I pray that which, whatever you are facing, God will grant you the grace. Right by Satan's seat, you will still succeed. Say Amen. They had overcome, they had withstood it. They had satanic assaults. And yet, they were enduring. They went through these choices. And then, in spite of all that, Jesus, the two-edged sword is working. He commended them, then the next verse, he starts to talk about the things that he doesn't like. And what did he say about them? Verse 14. Verse 14 of Revelation chapter 2. But I have a few things against thee. Because thou hast been with them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. This is a very deep teaching. So they are doing well in resisting false uh, worldliness. They are not messing up. They are doing well in terms of doctrinal position in the church, in, to some extent. But then he says, but you have something. You hold the doctrine of Balaam. So in one breath, you are, you are resisting satanic infiltration in the church. But in another breath, says the doctrine of Balaam. Who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block? Now, when you read the book of uh, Numbers, in chapter 22, right to 24, you will see this story about Balaam and Balak. The king who wanted to, uh, the Moabite king who wanted to curse the, uh, 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 I don't know whether a, a diviner, I wouldn't say a prophet, he was a diviner to curse Israel, to do some incantations against Israel. And this man couldn't do it. In to the extent that God had to speak to his donkey. Through his donkey. And eventually, the ritual didn't come on. But what happened, which you don't see literally, is seen in the next chapter, chapter 25 of Numbers. The first two verses. Where you see that Israel began, began to mess up. What happened was that he deceived Israel or lured them into um, idolatrous practice 
The curse didn't work because they were blessed. But he lured them. Temptation got the other part of them. Now watch that thing very carefully. So sometimes when the enemy tries, he doesn't try one way. He comes in many ways. Hallelujah. And I pray that God will open our eyes. This is an eye opening for all of us. Sometimes we can bind, we can break, we can lose, we can do all the things. But the enemy sits down, strategizes. The temptation of Balaam and Balak is where a person who is blessed, who is not cursed, but the enemy uses a little kind of taste, deception, relationship to just trickle, uh, to just break our defenses. That's what happened. That is what happened. That's what, is, what, that's what he calls the, 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 the Balaam, the doctrine of Balaam. Don't curse them, but lure them. So today, there are many areas in our lives that the enemy is trying hard to lure us into some form of worldliness. He knows that if he comes with this or that attraction, we will not. If he says, come and go and uh, 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 commit this uh, sin there, idolatry there directly, you will not. But if he gives to you, for example... Because you, are, you, you and I are, are maybe fashionable, trendy. If you say, oh, the, the thing you have, if, if you love this fashion, then maybe take the sign of the zodiac. You are born in August, or you are born in that month. Take this one, and the label is on it. Or Illuminati, or something like that. That one, we, we, we will not even see it. But before you realize, you are practicing it. In our fashion, our test for fashion, in our choices that we make, he's, he finds ways. Even in the kind of friendship, things that normally, when you, it comes face to face to you, you will not accept, because it has come through the back door, through somewhere, you would accept. I remember the late Margaret Thatcher saying to the Labour Party in those days, says, Labour Party is communism through the back door. So, many times the enemy comes up front to us. If he comes to lure us directly to fornicate or to, 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 to drink or to mess up, we will not. But if maybe you want to marry so badly, and he brings to you a gentleman, whether he's a Christian or he's not a Christian, that one, you don't even want to look at it. And anybody that may try to change your definition of a Christian, you have a problem. It can be. So that is the sin that's what the, the, the doctrine of Balaam. Where the Moabites were seduced into idolatry, not through the curse, but into seduction. Nice. They gave them the, the Moabite ladies, and the way they were doing it, the music they were playing, the Jews, the Israelites got caught in it until God judged them. May God help us. So we read Numbers 25, verse 1, until you see it. Another rebuke the Lord gave them was in false teaching. Against false teaching. It's similar in verse um, 15. So thou hast also them that hold the doctrine of Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. People say that Nicolat, Nicolaitan was created by, established by Nicholas, who used to be one of the deacons. I don't know the historical, it's not established, the seven deacons. But if that is the case, that means that he was a backsliding deacon. Whereas Philip and others survived to the very end. But here you are, Nicolaitans are connected to what we call libertine teachings. 
or practice. That, oh, there's nothing wrong with this. There's not, everything, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with anything. And everything is, we, we are free. We are, we come enslaved to our conscience, to our own liberty. It cannot be. God must love some things. God must hate some things. Hallelujah. So if one is living a life where everything is accepted, in the grace is so abundant. We have churches today who are teaching that, oh, we don't even have to confess if we sin. It's dangerous. And I remember a sister was telling me a brother came to him, to her, and this brother was feeling so bad and confused. And she asked him, when was the last time you confessed your sins? He has not been confessed because he, he feels that, oh, it's not even in the Bible, but it's in the Word of God. Hallelujah. In the book, here we are reading Revelation. Repent. What is the meaning of repent? Turn around. So if a church or a minister in today's world, preaching Christ, is saying, oh, don't repent. There's nothing wrong. Christ has dealt with that. When in the book of Revelation, the letter to the churches and to all of us, is saying that repent. Who says repentance is not in the Bible? Look at it. We all have to repent of the things we do. Consciously, unconsciously. We need to come to a sober moment when we say we are deviating. If you don't know how to repent, take the Bible, look at the book of Revelation, look at the last chapter, look at verse 15. You will see some of the things that you read that will help you to repent. Let's look at that quickly. It will help us all to repent. Revelation chapter 22, verse 15. It says, Without are the dogs, sorcerers, warmongers, and, and uh, murderers, and idolaters, and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. These are descriptions of immorality. So, it may not be even a sexual immorality, but you see, talking about lies, talking about attitude. When you go to uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, you see a list of things, anger, this, clamor, this, so many, then go to Galatians 5. When you examine yourself according to all these works of the flesh, you will know whether you have repented or not. If you sit down and say, look at my life, how am I seeing these things? So you don't, we cannot say, oh, repentance is not important. Repentance matters. It means, and it calls for humility. It calls for sober reflection. Hallelujah. So Jesus gives us, gives the church a warning to repent. He says, I'm coming quickly. Verse 12, 16. I'm coming with a sword in my mouth. And that sword is not a welcoming sword. It's a coming, he's coming with a sword to fight. Hallelujah. To fight against them. What does that mean? It means that any explanation we will have will not be tenable. Because there will be a superior word which will overrule and overwrite that explanation. We may say, oh, it's not my fault. It's so, so, and so. Oh, it's not my fault because I had this problem in my childhood. It's not my fault. It's so, so, and so. There is a superior word. So that's how he fights us. He has a superior word. He says, ah, and when you came through that situation, according to the same Romans 10, says there's no temptation that is greater than you, verse 13. But to every temptation, I provided a way of escape. And he says, my grace is sufficient for you. So everywhere we pass, we will not get a place to escape. When we come to Ezekiel 18, and say, oh, it's my father's generational case. He says, ah, there's this thing, I've heard it over and over. The soul that sin shall die. So that is the fighting 
that the Lord fights us. Or He will fight us when that final moment comes. Beloved, the good news is that there is a promise. Promise to the overcomer. Who eats the hidden manna. Now you remember that Jesus spoke about this in John chapter 6, verse 49 to 50. Talked about the manna that our fathers ate and then compared it to the other manna. So manna is sustainable life, God-given food. That's basically what it is. Coming straight from the presence of the Lord to sustain life. Then he says, receive a white stone which is a symbol of a reward or an award. A special medal of a sort which is a, a peer. Then he says, in which is written your name that only you will know. That name, I believe, is not maybe the names that our mothers and our fathers probably gave to us. I believe it's a unique name between us and God. What a, what, what, what a beautiful thing. What's a great thing to behold and to look forward to? Beloved, these are not fables. These are real things. If God, through His Word, said Jesus will be coming, and many years, 400, 500, 600 years after prophesying, Jesus came. And when Jesus came, He said, I'm going to lay my body down, and I'll die, and after three days I'll resurrect, and that happened. And when Jesus came up, He met His disciples, and many hundreds of people saw Him and felt His, 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 his body. Then, after he, the, uh, the resurrection, he ascended. And when he was ascending, he said, I will surely come. I believe that what he has said will come. Paul said to the Corinthians, If in this life alone we have hope, then we have all men the most to be pitied. So definitely, these things we are talking about, they are very real. Say, Amen. Let me conclude by saying these things. That this thing about overcoming is not a one-off event. It's a continuous event. When you look at Ephesians 6 verse 12, it says, For we wrestle not. It means we, don't, we, we continuously wrestle. So don't say, Oh, I defeated Satan and overcame this sin or this problem last year. So it will never come. It's a continuous victory we need to chalk until Christ comes. Say, Amen. Jesus knows our works and our deeds. Indeed, he has rewards and punishment for situations we demand so. It's a continuous assessment to the very end. I want us to finish well. I want to finish well. I want you to finish well. If the Lord tarries and we have to go and meet him, I want to be prepared. I want you to also be prepared. The scripture says, better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. I want to end by reading Ezekiel 18, verse 14 to 18. Then we pray, as we pray. Ezekiel 18, 14 to 18. We may rise to our feet as we read it together. It says, Now, lo, if he beget a son, that seeth all his father's sins, which he had done, and considereth, and doeth not such like, that had not eaten up the mountains, sorry, upon the mountains, neither had lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, had not defiled his neighbor's wife, neither had oppressed any, had not withholding the pledge, 
neither had spoiled by violence, but had given his bread to the hungry and had covered the naked with a garment. That had taken off his hand from the poor, that had not received usury nor increase, and had executed my judgment, had walked in my statutes. He shall not die for the iniquity of his father. He shall surely live. Verse 18. As for his father, because he's cruelly oppressed, fought his brother by violence, and did that which is not good among his people, lo, even he shall die in his iniquity. Let us pray that God will help us that when the, the sword of the Lord appears, mercy and reward will be our portion. Pray that, Lord, as I stand before you, I repent of my iniquity. Maybe yours may not be as big as other people's as you see it. They may be fornicating, may be lying, but whatever it is, yours may be pride, anger. As I said the other time, don't let a bat take you away from the presence of the Lord. So let us come before the Lord and say, Lord, help me. Let nothing be the hindrance between you and I. In the name of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Help us. Perfect your work in us, O Lord. Let mercy flow like a river. May we understand the fullness of the revelation of your sword. Your double-edged sword. I pray, O God, for myself and for my brethren, that none of us will be found wanting. Prepare us, O Lord, for your great day and for your reward. May we be, Lord, named among those that will carry that white stone with that secret name written. We pray that we will be part of those that will partake of the manna that you alone gave. If there is any part of our lives that hinders us from this, have mercy upon us. In the name of Jesus, let your grace abound. Strengthen us, O Lord, to resist the enemy. To stand against the powers and the works and the plots of the enemy. In the name of Jesus, in the scheme of Balaam, open our eyes to see it that we will not be taken in. In the name of Jesus, any colliding doctrine we resist in the name of Jesus. And help us to operate as overcomers through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Hallelujah.